Start jump sequence terminates, Captain. Get the gravitational dampers online and open the blast shield. Aye, sir. Bring us in closer. Aye, aye, sir. Moving us in on sublight drive. Extreme magnification. Aye, sir. The center of the galaxy. And there's our black hole. Experience of a lifetime, Captain. Let me put this on audio. You should be able to hear the magnetic resonance This is it, ladies and gentlemen. The edge of time and space where the impossible can happen. Welcome to the event horizon. Good morning, or afternoon, or evening, whatever is relevant for the part of the world you are in. Indeed, welcome to the Event Horizon, where the impossible happens. Join us each week at this time as we delve into the worlds of science fiction, fantasy, and science fact in all their forms. I'm your host, Gene Turnbow. And I am your other host, Susan Fox. And with us is Aaron Rado, who is the... (laughs) Welcome to the show. You are, uh, you are the author of a series of epic fantasy novellas, <laughs> uh, the Raven's Daughter series, uh, the ultimate fantasy snack read. That is a strange, that's a strange mental construct. Epic fantasy in small bites. In small bites. If it were, um, if it were a candy bar, it would not be the full-size bar, it would be the snack bar, the, uh, the fun size that you get at Halloween. I'm not short, I'm fun-sized. And I'm actually uh, taking... So, yeah, sorry. No, I'm just going to say I've actually taken the time to read the first one. And it's it's everything you say it is. It's epic fantasy. It feels epic. It feels, uh, it feels extremely well-founded and solidly based and expansive. And, and it's a short read. I think I got through the... I, I got through the first one in like an hour. <laughs> well, epic fantasy doesn't have to be whole novels or, or big bricks, you know, of, of 400 pages. Um, I, the, if you like, my, my, I always like to put, if you like this, you'll like that. And if you like um, the Tarma and Kethry stories, the Oath Bound by Mercedes Lackey, you will love this stuff. <laughs> oh, that's wow, a good gosh. comparison. Yes, it is. To be compared to Mercedes Lackey. Thank you. That's, uh, okay, you made my interview. Um. <laughs> <laughs> no, but it is, because there's a force for justice. There's, there's you know, a magical motivation behind it. And um, and and it all came in, it, it was all published separately in, in shorter works, and then collected together into, uh, you know, volumes. Now, I like how you have this extremely well-developed pantheon the whole the whole arrangement of how everything works is uh it feels so solid i mean it's it's been thought through and there's like more than one religion going on here too and and the spirits you know will interact with each other and not always in a friendly manner well there is a trick to cramming all that into eighteen thousand words (laughs) um (laughs) <laughs> which isn't even a full-size novella. Usually novellas start at 20,000 words. But um, uh, if I may, I will take you on a short journey how I how I created Tales of the Raven's Daughter. Please do. All right. So um, I've always been a writer. I mean, any of you who are out there who write, you know that's just what we do. Singers sing, dancers dance, writers write. Now, of course, writing doesn't pay the bills, so I'm also the Celtic artist at the Renaissance Festival uh, here in Southern California. So... Um, uh, I finally had uh, uh, gotten up the courage to finish a novel, a full, full-length full novel, on which I'd been working for, you know, the majority of my adult life. And um, I was lucky enough to um, be retained by a personal editor, Mr. Pat Labruto, who used to be the senior editor at Doubleday. He was the senior editor at Bantam and Ace. He has 40 years in the industry. And for my full-length novel, <laughs> it was... It was just it was just amazing when he said I'd love to work with you on on your novel, which is Grey Warrior, and um, uh, and so we polished it out and submitted over to Bantam. They passed. We submitted it to Tor because Tor is my holy grail. I'm an action writer. Mm. Action writers belong at Tor. Yes. Um, Tor or Ban, and and the senior of Ban did like it, but he just never got back to me on it. Anyway, Tor. 
So um, this is just this April when uh, I got my rejection from Tor for my novel. And of course, nobody ever wants to be rejected. And the rejection was very simple. And the rejection was, thank you, but it's not right for our catalog at this time. And, well, you know, what do you, what do, you do? I mean... It doesn't really tell you how to fix it, but yeah, or no, what they what it is that they want. <laughs> oh, Stop. that's not my doggy. Although my cat did just <laughs> no, react. that was that was our dog Nemo. Who, that was his alert bark. Oh my gosh, something okay, is happening. Let's, let's roll. Let's 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 roll back a couple sentences, shall we? Yeah. Uh, let's see where were okay, we? Okay, I know, um, I know what I was saying. Let me let me go back with it. You were and, saying uh, that and they, didn't give you yeah, and on. and he didn't really or that that letter didn't really tell you what is right for their catalog, which is not exactly. very useful. So luckily, Pat uh, uh, called over to tour for the postmortem, and uh, Pat calls me back and said, "Aaron, don't get don't get the editor wrong. She loved your book. She absolutely loved it. She thought you had talent." She thought you had style. She loved your world building. She loved your characters. But Tor doesn't have a mid-list any longer. None of the publishers have mid-lists. They have their A-list. That's all they can afford these days, I guess. And they only have a couple of slots. And in a way, the next sentence was kind of a compliment. He said, Aaron, your current novel reads more like The Queen's Gambit, and she needs the next Game of Thrones. And mm-hmm. and by the way, my editor worked on the Queen's Gambit, so he had a personal connection with that statement. Okay, okay, I get and that. I thought you know that's a correct assessment. My my novel <clears throat> is is a very strong character interpersonal book. It isn't Game of Thrones. So um, now I'm obsessing at week three during the Renaissance Festival here in Southern California, and I'm watching five guys walking around looking like The Witcher, <clears throat> and I'm. And I'm just thinking, I can do better than that. I know I can do better than that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And so, um, all I could see in my mind's eye, writers, if you've ever been there, you know what I'm talking about, was a complete blank piece of paper. I had nothing. Oh, the ultimate intimidation for a writer. Where do you start? Do you start with the world? Do you start with a character? Ah, where? So my art name uh, for over a decade now, my Celtic art is Raven's Daughter, which is an homage to the Celtic goddess Morrigan. And her totem animal is the raven, which is the animal that can go between the spirit world and the world of the living. And Morrigan is the warrior queen who decides who lives and dies in battle. So I've always used the diminutive Raven's Daughter. One, it's a Celtic homage. Two, it's search engine friendly, because if you Google Raven's Daughter, you're going to get something of mine. You're either going to get my Celtic art or you're going to get the book now or whatever. Raven's Daughter. Okay, I've got a starting point. Now I know I'm going for a female protagonist. Then what? So so between pacing around at the Renaissance Fair and pacing around my house, um, I don't know where I landed on it, but two of my absolute <clears throat> favorite characters uh, and from a, from a film... Tarna from Heavy Metal. I just mm-hmm. love that concept of the Tarakian defender. Mm-hmm. And funny enough, Etienne Navarre from Ladyhawk, Rooker Howard's character. Okay. Uh-huh. For some reason, I focused on that crossbow that Rooker Howard's character has, and bang, Alaris was born. I didn't have her name yet, but I knew I wanted a blonde woman in black armor with a kick ass crossbow. Okay. Everything began to form up from there. Now, um, I chose the name Alarice because I was thinking Alaric, as in Alaric the Goth. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, I wasn't sure what the female version was. And my, my dearest friend in the world, um, uh, Kelly Morse Johnson, I always call her Kitty. Uh, she's dedication on the, on the book. Um, said, well, <laughs> if it's European, just put an E on the end of it and that makes it feminine. Pretty much, my, yeah. My, Michelle, right. So, Alarice. Oh, okay. And sure enough, that's that's how it's properly spelled. So Alarice Linden uh, is my main character. And then everything began to fall into place once I had that focal point. And for me, characters, if I had to choose between character building and world building, I will always default to character building. Worlds are critical. Worlds are important. But people carry the heart and soul of your story. And I always recommend building your characters 
as a product of their worlds rather than worlds in which the characters walk around like little diorama figures. Um, that will give you the interpersonal edge that you need to draw your readers in. Well, worlds don't read books. People read books. Exactly. And they want to explore your world, and worlds are critical. But the people are where the people are conflict. Conflict is story. Ask anyone who's ever taken a screenwriting class. Thank you, Sid Field, who wrote screenplay. Conflict is drama. Mm -hmm. there, there we go. So um, I began to build out her world, and um, I decided uh, I don't do typical stuff. I'm sorry. I don't do dragons. I don't do elves or gnomes or, or ogres or orcs. In fact, Pat told me flat out he would disown me if I ever wrote a dwarf with a Scottish accent. <laughs> he said he would never, ever work with me again if I ever did that. He said, make him Italian, anything, just not with a Scottish accent. So, right, right. <laughs> so I don't I just don't do the tropes. That's just not me. So I but I still have to take my readers somewhere wonderful. I decided on the underworld, the the realm of the spirit, the realm of the dead. And cuz it is even though other authors have gone there, I knew I could really have a fresh canvas uh when uh, when concentrating on it. So I called it the ether realm, uh, and I spell it with a V, E V, E A E V E H. -E oh, for heaven's sakes! I can't even get my own silly <laughs> spelling the, of the ever realm. E V H E R E A L M E, or realm, for short. And realm always looks good spelled with an E. <laughs> so now I have a place where my girl is going to work, her home base. Now I need my girl. Now I need my world. And so. Alarice is a tavern mistress and she is assaulted, she's sexually assaulted and she is left for dead and she wakes up in the in the realm which is strange because usually the mortal body stays above but she came in as a whole package and she's met by this wonderful character named Odwin. Now I hope you two are smiling or anyone else who's read the novels mm -hmm are smiling because Odwin is just a fun character. Odwin is my take on Shakespeare's Puck. Yes, absolutely. Very much so. Odwin is gender fluid. Odwin can switch in a, in a blink of an eye from his youthful presentation, which is sort of a 19-year-old a boy, to her maiden presentation, where she's perhaps a, a, a young woman in her 20s. So not only is it a gender difference, but a little bit of an age difference. Ice blue eyes, white hair with little bursts of color in there. And um, Odwin is not only sarcastic, Odwin is also rather sagacious. And even though I don't put Odwin in battle in the first novel or the first novella, I certainly do in the other ones. So Odwin is a really fun character. Now, the reason why I chose Puck is because of the rulers of the realm. Usually, the underworld is ruled by a, a single masculine figure, uh, such as Hades in Greek mythology. I chose Oberon and Titania and made them into the King of Shadows and the Raven Queen. And that gives a really neat duality. Uh, also, you mentioned my pantheon. Uh, in my gods above, I also have a father god of fire and a mother goddess of water wind, again with a duality. Odwin, him herself, is, is also dual. And then we have Alaris and we have my uh, my guy in this series. His name is Creston. The book has kind of a yin-yang thing going on. It surely does. Everything's got a balance. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's just, it just fell into place that way beautifully as I began developing the uh, the characters. And so... Um, both the King of Shadows and the Raven Queen offer for Alaris to become their champions because she is a natural-born realm walker. She doesn't know this. Realm walkers aren't born all that often. Um, and she's always known that she could hide in the shadows and no one would ever find her. And so she's offered the chance to um, become the champion of one of these. But in so doing... Um, uh, she actually, in the opening scenes, she took revenge on the man who raped her. She poisoned him. And she's guilt-ridden about that because even though he clearly deserved it, and he did, um, who was she to meter out that kind of justice? So she chooses to serve the Raven Queen. And in her first task, 
she finds that her service is of a self-redeeming type of value in addition to lending her services to the people who need her the most, the innocent who need to be rescued. Mm-hmm. I am uh, I am struck by the the adherence to the standards of myth and legend, the, the dichotomy that you mentioned between the the fire and the water and the yin and the yang and the light and the dark. That is a very, very common element in mythology and religions from all over the world, from every age. I'm struck by the, uh, the, the linguistic current of the Saxon uh, the name like Alaric, um, job description of reef, which which sounds to me like reeve, which well, is sort of course, almost like a policing we, position. Reef is how we get the word sheriff. Right. The, reef the, the shire, shire reeve. Shire. Mm-hmm. Right. Yes, uh, that's, um, yeah, uh, positions. I made up one, um, the prime cheval, who is the lord of Alaric's town. Um, that's, that's not a word that exists. C-H-E-V-A-L. Well, that, that's that's more Latin via French, isn't it? Exactly. But, yeah. of course, I'm trying to take the word chivalry uh, and make it into my own term. Mm-hmm. Um, but a, a C-H-I-V-A-L, I think, is a goat herd, and that wouldn't work. So, mm-hmm. uh, change, when in doubt, change a vowel. Um, there we go. <laughs> that's that how sense. I come up with a lot of my names. When in doubt, change a vowel. Yeah, in French, it just means horse. Exactly. Yeah. But the prime cheval would, you can conjure up our lord of horse or something like that. Yeah, it sounds made, made oh. more fancy pants than the average, you know, fancy Joe, Joe Schmo. The, exactly. Yeah. He's, he's a throwaway character, although uh, he'll come full circle um, in the uh, in the sixth story. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. Oh, hon. I, I, let me tell you, let me just sum it up this way for anyone listening. Enjoy this phrase. My editor, Pat, described my work as Hitchcock on Phil Dick's drugs. <laughs> ah! <laughs> I, that's very apt. That's very well, apt. There probably are a few people who will understand the Hitchcock reference, but not Phil Dick. Now, for those of us who know Phil Phil's work, yes. But of course, for those of you who don't, we're talking the short stories that became Blade Runner, Total Recall, Minority Report. We're talking the man in the high castle. That's Philip K. Dick. Um, of course, my editor knew him, so he wouldn't refer to him as his full formal name. He just Phil Dick. Uh, but I am not afraid to go into the realm of dark psychology. I am not afraid to push it into the dark side. And I think, having read The Beast of Basque, you might see a hint of that. Well, just meeting in- Creston, you know, he, with you know, full on PTSD and and um in. You know, psy- you know, psychology and parapsychology. <laughs> yep. Creston is my guy. Uh, Creston, I, I like to say Duhald. I spell the U with an umlaut. But um, uh, again, we're we're dealing with um, uh, a central area of Europe. Alaris uh, is, uh, as you say, it's Saxon. Um, uh, <coughs> you can easily have a Teutonic influence. So Duhald or Duhalda. Uh, Creston is my guy. Creston's older and uh, a little worse for wear. Um, and, um, and there's a wonderful twist in the first book regarding Creston. So, uh, not everybody sees that right away. So I won't give you that spoiler, but, um, Creston, yes, has a very, uh, um, regrettable past that initially presents as PTSD, but I promise you it's a lot more deep than that. Um, and, uh, as the novellas progress, uh, I, I certainly pay that to full froth. full arc so it also gives us this neat duality because Creston's a rather serious kind of guy although he can lighten up especially when he's had a good drink um Odwin on the flip side is just so wonderfully sarcastic which I'm sorry I think sarcasm is so desperately missed in fantasy these days now you don't have to go full bore on it but give me somebody who's really good and snarky like like Tony Stark balances out the Avengers Otherwise, they're all just so straight-laced. You know, like, guys, get over yourself, please. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Somebody crack a joke. Um, <laughs> there's, um, there's a scene in the second book early on. This is not a spoiler to tell you. Creston is trying to teach my girls swordplay. By the way, not only does Alaris have this neat little crossbow, um, it's a miniature crossbow that self-loads. 
So all she has to do is aim it, and a and the string pulls back, and a small little bolt appears in the flight groove, and she can rapid fire. So she doesn't have, have she doesn't have to pull it back. She doesn't have to pull it back. She, all so she has it doesn't to do take any. So, yeah, so so uh, um, an antagonist looks at that and looks at this little girl, who obviously doesn't have the upper body strength to pull back much of a crossbow, right? And doesn't think she's a threat. And it's a little crossbow; it's like a miniature-sized crossbow, which beli- uh, which belies its power. It oh yes, she also has the queen's dagger. Um, now, what's so neat about uh, a realm dagger um, is that. You throw it, it will always strike its mark. All you do is hold up your hand and it'll appear right back in your palm. It's um it's not like Mjolnir that flies back to Thor. You just hold it up and you hold up your hand and it appears right for you. Nice. Yeah. And so um it's fun to get some rapid fire weaponry into a medieval setting. But you have to really keep it medieval. One of the really nice reviews that I received um on Amazon was a gentleman who complimented me on not putting anything modern sounding, especially dialogue, into this world. You got to keep it in its proper time and place. But circling back to um, Odwin and Creston, Creston is trying to teach Alaris how to use a broadsword. Uh, that's what Creston does. He was a military captain. He knows his broadsword work very well. Alaris is not comfortable with a, a weapon that large, and so uh, Odwin shows up and says, "How much longer are you going to do that?" Creston says, "You think you think you can do better." You think you can teach her better? And and Odwin says, Creston, why do you always ask questions you know you're going to regret? And, uh, <laughs> and the scene progresses from there. Um, well, learning so, the sword is a matter of, not a matter of minutes, it's a matter of months and years. And for that matter, that, dagger throwing is harder than it looks, too. And, and dagger wielding, because you have to close the distance to your opponent... Although, luckily, she can throw the thing, and the thing is self-guiding, so that does give her... Excuse the pun. It gives her an edge. Um, I got the point. Ah, yes. Well, let's not bloody ourselves too much on this one. Okay, stop now. Stop. That's some real cutting-edge dialogue there. There we go. All right. I'm going to to sheathe that one. Um, Draw it for later. Stop, Aaron. Cut it out. (laughs) Sometimes you just can't help yourself. Okay, so um, so what I've done here, what, another reason I chose short fiction, let's get back on that topic. We can just forge ahead. You, oh, see, there we go. <laughs> oh, God, it's so tempting. Stop, get a grip. Because I've already got one in get my head. Get a hilt. You know, yeah. Sorry. Yeah, to the, in the fires, la, la, la. All right. I chose short fiction also because, well, a couple of reasons. Um, one, that's how The Witcher got started. The Witcher started as short stories. I did not and, know that. I did mm-hmm. not know that. Yep. Uh, the uh, author, forgive me, I cannot pronounce his name even if I had it right in front of me. He's he's from Poland. And he um, entered one of his short stories in a contest. It didn't win. He came in third. But he started publishing it online, and his stories got a fan following. And he wrote more short stories, and there you go. And knowing that history of The Witcher, because, again, as I'm creating these this novella series, I'm in a totally obsessive compulsive frame of mind and I am looking up you know why did the witcher become so hot you know you know what's it got that I don't have what can I do how can I emulate some of this I also started pitching this to the renaissance fair because I still had four more weekends to go at ren fair and I said how about a short read that will only take you one or two hours and everybody loved the concept because everyone is busy I mean you know when your friend says oh my god this book is amazing you, you nod politely, and in the back of your mind, you're rolling your eyes like, I don't have time to read a book. I don't have time for a novel. But these little snack reads, these little, I'm, I'm reinventing the dime novel for fantasy, for fantasy fans. And these little guys are only about 80 pages long in the, heart, in the, in the paperback. They're um, a, a one to two hour read, and they really read like a television episode. And I'm... Uh, as I was creating the series, again, I was thinking in the back of my mind to the editor at Tor, you want the next Game of Thrones? I'm going to give you the next Game of Thrones. I'm going to give you a female protagonist in a tighter character setting so you don't have to learn all the names in an encyclopedia. 
and that is a strong interpersonal relationship. And when the arc is finished after book six, hopefully I will give you a death as powerful as the death of Spock. Wow. That's, that's saying that's, something. Well, that's what I've got planned. Um, also, I have created the fantasy equivalent of Romulan Ale. It is called Realm Brew. Oh, that's yeah. I noticed that. Yeah, you know, it came up in the uh, it came up in the first book, in the first novella. I didn't realize it until I got to novella number four when I was outlining these. By the way, outlining is important. Um, that I had a drinking scene in every single one of these books. And well, it well, she comes from you know she's a tavern keeper. She was a tavern mistress. <laughs> she's so. gonna notice this, and she's going to go to a familiar you know location when she well, gets and, to a new town. And and uh, the center of any town, uh, it's a gathering place. Yeah, yeah, it, yeah the gathering the places. It's going to be either the marketplace, which people don't go there to socialize; they go to shop and get what they need. Exactly. And the only place that's that's constant and consistent is going to be the tavern. So that makes exactly. if if you have that in every in every book, you know that makes perfect sense. And of well, course, loose lips loose lips give you information because when people <laughs> are drunk, that's where you're going to find, you know, what you need. Now, apart from there's always a tavern scene in every single D and D adventure. Um, I try and make mine a little bit more original, and it's not always a tavern. Um, but um, uh, as I said to one of my friends who's been he's uh, <laughs> I have a wonderful friend uh, in uh, the Midwest his name's Christopher Fane and um, uh, he's the one who gets the late night phone calls oh my god Chris you gotta listen to this um, just on a personal note I, I was happily married for 27 years and I lost my husband in a in an automobile accident and he used to be the one who would be woken up at midnight oh my god I just had the greatest idea now it's Chris so when um, uh, when I uh, uh, mentioned that I had all these drinking scenes, he says, we've got to get an online drinking game going. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought, okay, what would work for Realm Brew? Um, I once did an article uh, on a wonderful company that makes mead. They're in Vermont. They're called the Gronfell Meadery, G-R-O-E-N-N-F-E-L-L. I have heard of them. They, oh, God. They make mead that drinks like a light beer, except it's sweet because it's mead, and it's gluten-free because it's mead. Mead, for oh, all yeah. of you out there, is fermented honey. Yeah, I brew mead, so <laughs> I go. get it. <laughs> now, usually mead is like a, a cordial, like a honey syrup. Oh, not at all. No, it depends. Uh-uh. Well, um, okay. It can be, but uh, if you let it go, <laughs> if you let it, if you let it keep fermenting, you can get some very nice dry products. Yeah, well, it's depending on okay. depending on the yeast you use. I mean, yeah. I, I made up a, a, I did a couple of growlers of uh, stuff based on an, uh, using a, a dry wine mead. Yeah, I, I think we had it, champagne yeast yeah. and that stuff dried out really nice. Yeah, I found it undrinkable, but you know, we took it to the uh, we took it to an SCA event and the uh, they yummed it up. Yeah, they loved it. <laughs> so I couldn't, that's how I couldn't I drink imagine, it. That's how I imagine Realm Brew would actually be a mead. Okay. And a light carbonated mead. So if I ever am wildly successful, you'll know my con suite because it will be the one with mead. And it will be if 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 I can if if the stars align and everything becomes successful, which would be so great, I would love to see if Gronfeld would actually make for me realm brew. You know, I bet they would. Because yeah, why not? To get that fizz you just have to bottle it at the right stage, you know. Before you these put guys it up. actually, um, these guys actually can it, and hmm, um, that's right. No, no, I've seen that. I've seen it. It's uh, they do it in the big vats like a microbrewery, and um, and then some of theirs are very um, pitched with flavors like sour cherry or uh, ginger honey. Um, I like their more straight up traditional flavors. But anyway, now now fantasy can claim the equivalent of Romulan ale. It is Realm Brew. From Tales of the Raven's Daughter. Okay, well, you heard it here first, and uh, you know if they can can beer, they can can mead. That makes exactly. a lot of sense and to me. Boy, is it good too! Comes in four packs. So anyway, that's the Gromfell Meadery. But um, yeah, everyone is really enjoying the short fiction, just to be able to take a nice little break and read a television episode, or if you're a slower reader, reads like a movie, 
but it's that's it. It's a two hour time commitment and nothing more. It's where you lay yeah. on the beach. <laughs> it's a beach read. It's a beach read or it's a travel read or it's a please don't bother me. I totally need to decompress read. And um, it's a little tricky to get all that depth into short fiction. Um, it does help that I studied screenwriting a little bit because the scenes in my novel or novella are, are kind of similar in length and their and their arc and their punchline when scenes have a punchline to scenes that you would see in a television broadcast. Um, I'm just um, I'm just writing them in prose. Well, it certainly it certainly does work. Uh, the, your pacing is just exactly on point. Uh, I'm working on uh, um, a a novel myself, and after after having read your stuff, uh, I think I need to go back to the drawing board and just redo everything from scratch. <laughs> yeah, my. I think you- oh, go ahead, please. Yeah, no, my pacing sucks. And uh, my characters aren't deep enough, and my world isn't developed enough, and it just doesn't have, it doesn't have uh, anywhere near the 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 polish of the the development on the the world or the stories that it needs to be a good read. Well, for one, I will say, murder your darlings. I mean, you. Oh can, yeah, oh yeah. I have okay. no. Com- I have no <laughs> compunction about ripping it all out and doing it over. But I also say, do not compare your rough draft to other people's finished products. Well, that's you don't know how, what oh, yeah. she went through to to make this final. Exactly. Well, Ray confession. Bradbury is the only author I can think of that actually published his first draft. Yeah, imagine what he would do with you know if he'd actually done rewrites. <laughs> I I can promise you these are not my first draft. And by the way, everybody, yes, editors help a lot. Now, my editor, Pat, has been uh, uh, very, very busy lately. So um, here's here's another lesson for writers from my own experience. I started shopping for editors. I started reaching out to Facebook groups and editors. I need an editor because it really helps to have a second set of eyes. Really, really does. Well, there's certain levels of editing. There's, there's, you know... um as it were editorial you know for the content but also you know copy editors which are also yep. irreplaceable absolutely so you have your in-depth editing when your story is really raw and you're really not even sure of the recipe yet are the characters working is the world working is that's that's the really kind of in-depth editing that takes a long long time um i was confident enough in my work that i could present a really good first draft and I didn't need that much in-depth editing. That didn't stop some editors from really tearing it all apart and putting it back together again, which I knew I didn't need. And this is where shopping for an editor is important. Always send out a, a sample of a thousand or two thousand words. An editor will usually just do a sample edit and you have to really see if it's a match because it's a bit of a partnership, it's a bit of a marriage. Um, when you when you work with an editor, you got the chemistry is incredibly important between you and your editor. And um, I I went through three or four before I found um, the the lady I really really like, and her name is Samantha, and um, her uh, company is Finished Fiction. And by the way, everybody, my website is my name Erin Rado Author E R I N R A D O Author dot com. And um, there's a link to Pat down at the bottom. There's a link to Samantha for finished fiction down at the bottom of my uh, webpage. And um, also, I also have a proofreader in addition to an editor. And you need both. You really, really do. In the um, in the first uh, draft of uh, Beast of Basque, which is um, uh, the first uh, tale and um, uh, first story in Tales of the Raven's Daughter, Alaris uh, has just poisoned the guy who raped her in the first scene and now she needs to make her escape from the banquet hall and she runs down and she launches herself into the pages bearing dessert trays except in so many drafts i spelled it desert trays oh yeah uh plates Whoops. full of sand what's what's exactly. that about <laughs> and what was funny is those editors who really thought i'm sorry they were all that in a bag of chips and um just started wholesale rewriting my work they didn't catch desert trays no <laughs> <laughs> and right. interestingly, interestingly enough, Samantha, I don't think, caught Desert Trace. She might have. I'll have to take a look back at her notes. But my proofreader caught Desert Trace. 
and uh, well, James the focus is different, you know. Absolutely, the, your your story editor is is looking at your arcs, and your proofreader is looking exactly. at your spelling. <laughs> See, it's when you're self-publishing, it's a business. It's not unless you mean it as a vanity project. Then you know all bets are off. But if you want to really produce a quality product, you need to do what the big publishers do. The big publishers run it through an editor. They run it through a copy editor. They run it through the proofreading. They run it through marketing. And and all of these departments weigh in. Well, guess what? If you want to produce a quality product as a self-published author, you got to do the exact same stuff. It's just it's usually just you doing it. But you've got to work with an editor. A proofreader is essential. Um, I've done all the graphic designs for the covers of my novels, which uh, novellas, which I think everybody seems to really like the the boldness of the covers. They're they're really kind of pretty. But if I wasn't a graphic designer, I would have to hire one to do some really good covers. Um, and then marketing, yay! That's one of the reasons why I'm here, of course. But also, you've got to reach out and try and plan your your book launch and your marketing strategy. It's you got to approach it as much as a business as you do, you know, your heart and soul and creative endeavor. So much of the creative process is invisible to the consumer. There's very little visibility on any of that because all they ever see is the finished work. Yep. So it's uh, it's always an eye-opener talking to somebody who does the creative work because you get to see what the environment is like where, where they operate. And, and I am always surprised by the things I find talking to creatives, especially writers, because there seems to be a great deal of... Uh, there seems to be a great deal of uh, variety in approaches to getting these things done. And some people rely more on editors and copy editors and things like that than others. You got to find your groove. You got to find your team. Um, uh, when you're the writer, uh, some writers will surrender that to an editor, as you just said, and look for guidance. Um, I've run my own small business for um, well over a decade, so I kind of have an idea on how I want to handle this as um, as a marketer and as a business owner. So I will take off the author hat and put on the marketing hat, and that way I can bring my team together, and I'm comfortable calling it my team of wonderful folks, but I'm the focal point. Not all authors are like that. But it is important to get as much input as possible and subject your work to scrutiny. And that's the sucky part because you just don't know if it's any good or not. And and when people give you an honest assessment, um, I have another very good friend. I'm gonna give him a shout out, Martin Young. Um, he was a friend of my husband's for decades, friend of mine as well. And he read some of the first drafts of The Beast of Basque where I had way too much superfluous backstory in the opening scenes which doesn't exist in the book at all now. And uh, Martin got through the first scene and gave me a really in-depth critique, but he just couldn't read any further because I was just bogging down the timeline. Yeah, the pacing, the pacing of it, you know, you, you uh, have to meet out the exposition blended yep. with the action only in as, insofar as it supports the action or you're yep. basically hosed. Yeah, and, and then you, what's hard is pulling back to that 30,000-foot view and going, do I really need that? Why did I write that? What was the purpose of that scene? Because when you're in the forest, you're so wedded to the trees, you don't want to chop any of them down. Well, yeah, and it's because you, you've got your... <laughs> you've you've written your scene and you've dropped in all this exposition that really should have been in your backstory notes, mm -hmm. but you only thought of it just then, and you haven't taken yep. the time to separate the two out. Yep. Well, it's easier I, now on the computer. Yeah, it's easier time, now. Time was, you know, you'd have to pull a piece of paper out of your typewriter, oh, put another gosh. one in. Yeah, and yes. and, and uh, the process was a whole lot slower. But, uh, yeah. No, I've uh, suffered from that. <laughs> here's, here's another. Uh, I don't know if this quote is directly attributed to Coco Chanel, but it works. Take off the last thing you put on. Okay. It works in fashion. It works in writing. Really? Take off that take off that last prepositional phrase. You probably don't need it. Let's take off that adverb. You probably don't need it. How about taking off that last scene that you just wrote? 
guess what? You might not need it. <laughs> yeah, the, the the trick that we were taught at UCLA Film School, I, I was in the uh, screenwriting track, was uh, if you can cut it out and somebody who's seeing it for the first time wouldn't notice the difference, mm-hmm. then, uh, yeah, it shouldn't be in there in the first place. Then it shouldn't be in there in the first place. And boy, editing your own work just for style uh, uh. Is, is so, so hard. Because this is a labor of love. You know, this is your heart and soul going out. But, you know, if you can't take the critiques, if you can't take the heat, be an accountant. Seriously, this is the hardest thing to do is subject your work to scrutiny. But you got to do it. You just absolutely have to do it. And you have to listen. Because most people aren't haters. They, they won't rip you apart because they're mean. They will give you an honest critique, like my friend did, Martin. And said, this just doesn't work. It's just too heavy. And, you know, we all we all say, oh, poo-poo on you. You don't know what you're thinking about. But then it begins to percolate through your brain. And then you start looking at it again. You go, huh, what do you know? He had a, he had a point. Okay. And you crumple up that virtual piece of paper. Or in this case, just save it to a file with all your stuff. Because you may like a, the way you phrased a sentence. And, oh, wait, wait. I didn't want to delete that. You never know when you're going to pull mm-hmm. from your backstory later. But that's what backup files are for. And then mm-hmm. you just keep going through it until it's um, crisp and clean and no caffeine. Yeah, I have a, I have a morgue file. For those of you who know old television commercials. Oh, yeah. no, we're old. How did that happen? <laughs> yeah, I have, a, I have a morgue file that I use for that. If, I, if I've written a bit that I absolutely love, but uh, I've, just, I've figured out, oh, this breaks the pacing or it requires too much support right here and the action slows down if I try to explain it. I'll, I'll yank it out and I'll throw it in the morgue and maybe, you know, so that I can use the scrap later for something else. Yeah, I did the same thing in uh, novella number seven. I had phrased something a certain way and then I took out that story completely, uh, took out that scene completely. And it took me forever to find where I'd put it on my computer. And I have a I have a morgue file. I simply call it unused. But I'm like, oh, that's right. I edited it out. So I went through every single one of my stories to you know, where did I write that? Where did I write that? And I was driving myself crazy because I couldn't find it. But yes, learn learn how to, um, you know, edit yourself and then send it out to friends and have your friends get back to you as, as soon as they possibly can, which maybe never because novels are long. Um, and again, that's why I really encourage people to work on short fiction. You can go short, short, like short stories, uh, publish those hopefully on uh, e-zines and um, fanzines you can do what I've done which is uh, a novella length very short novella length novelette perhaps <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah and um, it's it's really good discipline it's really good practice you may have that wonderful novel in the back of your head but start writing your characters backstories as short fiction stories you never know you may be a famous author one day and people will want to read those Hello, Cimmerillion. Sim- mm. Oh, mm. yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Right. So, it's well, and like that. It's, it, the importance of sharpening one's, uh, sharpening one's saw before making the cut, you know. Yep. Uh, George R. R. Martin sharpened his tools by being a dungeon master. And that's where he got his start, writing stories and creating characters and and developing uh, interweaving plot lines and, and this kind of thing. Where you really see that is in, uh, it was a superhero game and which ended up being the, um, uh, what was that called? The um, Aces Wild? Aces, uh, yeah. Is, did, I, did I get it right for once? Well, one of the titles was Aces Wild. I Aces think. Wild. But the, uh, now I've blanked on those. Oh, Do you mean the there. old role-playing games like Gunslinger? I'm thinking more like Superhero 44. Yeah, my uh, my husband was an avid gamer, and my God, did he have every game on the face of the planet too? Um, wild cards, wild cards, wild cards. Series. That was it. No, there you go. That was right, it. right. Uh, yeah. Thank you. So, um, I will be at Lost Con. Uh, I'm LA based. Um, I've applied to WonderCon for next year. I think they're going to have me. Great. Which which would be great. I'll be in the small press um, area. I am applying. Uh, knock on wood for Comic Con. In the small press division, uh, you have to jury in, but they actually still support small publishers and small presses, and that includes self-published authors. So um, that would be wonderful if they um, brought me onto the floor for Comic-Con. 
Uh, I just got accepted into the Great Conjunction. Everybody, there is the the 40th anniversary of the Dark Crystal. That's the second weekend of November at um, the um, uh, Universal Hilton in Los Angeles. And I will be at the Great Conjunction. And, of course, I will also have my table next year at the uh, Renaissance Festival because that's my home show. Um, I'll also be down at the Escondido Ren Fair, which is uh, at the end of October and the first part of November. That's a good show. It's an awesome show. And interestingly enough, um, uh, and I know we'll be wrapping up soon, but the third book in my novella is The Wizard in the Wild. Now, down at the Escondido show, we have these black and white barbarians. They're called the Wild Collective. They spell it properly, W-I-L-D. When I was wondering, uh, you know, where do I start with a novel, culture, character, uh, before I figured out what Alarise was, I was wondering if the Wild were just a, a guild or whether they had historical basis. Well, it turns out they're just a guild, and by the way, a freaking awesome one. Mm-hmm. And um, and so uh, I reached out to them, and their uh, guild mistress, their queen, um, uh, uh, we just had a wonderful chat. And so I based my third novella, The Wizard and the W-Y-L-D, Wild, I based my wilds on... The Wild Collective. <laughs> oh, you just made their whole decade, didn't you? Well, uh, they, they were gracious enough to have me down to one of their guild meetings. I'll be joining them for Escondido. And then the wizard character is my beloved husband, Paul. Oh. Uh, who is a wizard named Paulden. That's not a huge stretch. Mm-hmm. Uh, and by the way, if you're ever reading this, I haven't ever uh, thought of casting, should I be lucky enough to be Oh, I don't know, picked up for TV because this is really tailor-made for television, at least I that's what I hope. But the only character that I've ever even thought of casting is my guy, Creston, my older military captain with a troubled past, and Kiefer Sutherland would be perfect. Oh yeah. Yep, I can see that. Yeah. I can absolutely see that. Yeah, now now that he's got a few years on him. I mean, this is not this is not Lost Boys era. This is now. Exactly. When you said exactly. wizard in the wild, the first thing that popped into my head was, aha, hedge wizards. Oh, that's interesting. <laughs> hmm. So the that's wizard in the wild. A wizard in the wild might be a hedge wizard. Yep. Um, one, one other thing is I will be self-publishing my little novellas. Uh, they're going to go out again as a package uh, a collection, and we're going to hit um, Ace, uh, Bantam, Daw, and Tor. And Bayon, if he'll give give us a call back. So I will be soliciting uh, the major publishers. Now, usually major publishers don't take um, a self-published work because what's in it for them to sell? Except what they can do, a publisher can not only bind them together as a complete collection, I can always write an extra Easter egg story, like an Odwin story, mm-hmm. which, which would be just so much fun. And um, Odwin and- goes to the Renaissance Festival. Well, <laughs> so I invite everyone to um, uh, to pop on over to Amazon and simply search for Tales of the Raven's Daughter um, or my website, Aaron Rado Author, or search Raven's Daughter. You're bound to get at least something of mine. And um, yeah, the uh, first two are uh, available on Kindle and in paperback. The Kindle is 99 cents. And they are a delightful read. I just the, uh, I just the devoured second, the first one. Just the second wow. Kindle book is actually available on the sixteenth. Oh, well, by the time people hear this, <laughs> it'll be available. Yeah, right. Gene, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to talk over no, you. Oh, that's apologies. that's okay. I was just saying that uh, that I read the first one in like uh, an hour, and it was just. I and he just, doesn't do that normally. He, he doesn't just devour things like this. Yeah, I mean, it takes a lot to get me going on something. And uh, I just, I just ripped through it. It was so much fun. Thank you. That's a, that's how I designed it to be with highs, with lows, with fun points. Um, uh, again, Odwin with his sarcasm as Alarise is waking up from, you know, having just been murdered. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, uh, he keeps tapping her on the forehead. Wake up, little flashbot. Come on now. <laughs> and that yeah. flicking on her forehead becomes a running joke. Out, out, quit it, out, quit it, out, quit it. Well, they sneak up on each other, Alice <laughs> and Odwin. And um, also, Odwin has this really uh, fun thing. When he, when Odwin says something that makes you incredulous and you respond, what? Odwin will say, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't realize you were hard of hearing. I can shout! 
(laughs) (laughs) And that also becomes her running gag, uh, especially at at a moment that is totally inappropriate. Uh, And uh, those are the best kind of jokes is when everything is so serious. And then one character just (laughs) drops a moment of humor in there. It really helps to break up the face. Comic relief goes back to antiquity, after all. Well, timing, you know. Timing is everything. As the great Stan Freeberg said, comedy is like playing with your dad's gun. (laughs) 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 Yeah. So Tales of the Raven's Daughter. And by the way, um, there's a category on Amazon where I, I got so close. I was number 59 at one point on Amazon. And that category is two hour science fiction and fantasy short reads wow mm-hmm. that's cool and yep. the books the books are cool ladies and gentlemen we have been talking to Aaron Rado the author of a series of novellas called uh, The Raven's Daughter Tales of the Raven's Tales Daughter Tales of the Raven's Daughter thank you and you okay. can find her at AaronRadoAuthor.com and search for her books on Amazon Mm-hmm. Thank it was you. Great. Thank you for having me. It was a delight. It was. I thought you you never know what you're going to get in an interview, and this one was really really fun. Gonna have to get together at a con and all open up a can of Realm Brew. Oh, I yes. think we need to do that at Lost Con. I think that that would be great. Well, we <laughs> we we are required to show up. <laughs> I'll be in the dealer hall and you guys will be out at the fan tables and yeah. yeah. Oh, oh, we'll we'll abandon the fan tables. <laughs> so. There's meat involved. If there's meat involved, absolutely. Realm Brew. Raise a glass to Realm Brew. You have been listening to episode 247 of Sci-Fi.Radio's weekly production of the Event Horizon for Saturday, September 17th, 2022. Our guest this evening has been writer, artist, and illustrator Aaron Hunt Rado, the author of the new epic fantasy series of novellas, Tales of the Raven's Daughter. Aaron is coincidentally the station manager of Celtic Rock Radio, a radio station dedicated to Celtic music of a more modern variety. You can find Aaron's work at AaronRadoAuthor.com. Celtic Rock Radio is available at CelticRockRadio.com. This episode will air again tomorrow, September 18th at 4 p.m. Pacific, 7 p.m. Eastern, and again on the following Thursday and Saturday mornings at 4 a.m. Pacific, 7 a.m. Eastern. Once all of the airtimes have passed, you'll be able to download this episode as a podcast from iTunes, Stitcher, Pandora, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, and from our own website at sci-fi.radio. Sci-Fi.Radio is listener-supported, Sci-Fi Geek Culture Radio, and the vast majority of our funding comes from listeners just like you. If you enjoy programming like what you just heard, please visit patreon.com slash sci-fi radio and give generously. The Event Horizon title sequence was written and produced by Gene Turnbow. The science officer was science fiction illustrator Mark Schurmeister. The engineer was Christian B. McGuire. The navigator was Christine Cherry. And the captain was voiced by science fiction grandmaster Larry Niven. Sci-Fi.Radio's The Event Horizon is copyright 2022 by Krypton Media Group Incorporated. The Event Horizon on Sci-Fi.Radio. It's sci-fi for your Wi-Fi. <laughs>